Thank you, Sarah, for that ministry in music. The passage before us is one that I would label as disturbing. I think it's disturbing because it is filled with numerous impossibilities. Jesus is going to lay out a course of action that is, frankly, one that does not make a lot of sense to us. I would submit to you that we really don't live by this standard. So, who would do what this passage instructs us to do? Who lives that way? Once again, Jesus is demonstrating that the teaching and the practice of the Pharisees with regards to righteousness simply does not go far enough. Jesus had said to his disciples, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. How righteous does a person need to be in order to enter the kingdom of heaven? Just how good must an individual be? What kind of works must they do? What kind of evil must they be aversive to? How holy, how righteous, how good does a person have to be to enter the kingdom of heaven? The answer is completely righteous, wholly righteous, perfectly righteous. The concluding verse to this particular section is found in verse 48. We'll actually get there next week. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the conclusion. You are to be perfect the way that your heavenly Father is perfect. That's how holy you have to be in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, who measures up to that? Well, not one of us here. That's for sure. And so that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need forgiveness. That's why we need to have a relationship to Jesus Christ. That's why he had to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. We don't measure up. But who lives the way that is described in these verses before us? And the answer is only one. Jesus lived this way. Jesus embodied the teaching that is in this particular passage. Jesus had said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't come to lower the standard. He didn't come to make it so that it was easier for us to attain. No, he didn't come to abolish, remove, or lower the standard. He came to teach the standard He came to live the standard, and he came to make it possible for us to be forgiven for having failed the standard. Jesus is the perfect example of righteousness. Jesus practiced 
what he preached. Jesus lived by the high standards that he set. But Jesus also taught us that we are to be salt and light in the world. That is, we're to be the source of instruction in exposing evil, and we're to be a people who preserve the world from further evil by our conduct. So how do we do that? The answer is by living righteously. By being a people of righteousness, we are light. We instruct, we teach about what righteousness is, and by conducting ourselves in a righteous manner, we retard the evil that is taking place in this world, and we replace it with good, with good. So we are to seek to ourselves embody this teaching as much as we can. We shouldn't just simply say, because we're not perfect, we throw up our hands, but we should seek to live this kind of life. We should allow it to impact us. We should take the time to reflect, acknowledge where we fall short, ask for God's grace to do better, and forgiveness for where we fail him. Jesus has been addressing a number of areas of righteousness and where the uh, Pharisees do not go far enough in their practice and teaching of righteousness. Jesus is now going to address the issue of injustices. Injustices. What is the righteous or proper response to the injustices that we encounter personally? Personally. Now, let me just take a moment and say that's the key here. He's not talking about governments. Governments have a responsibility to respond in a, a different way than we as individuals have. And we as individuals have a different responsibility than what government has. And this morning we're looking at our personal responsibilities. That is, the injustices that we see and hear about, but much more. It's the injustices that are aimed against us. The injustices that bring us pain in our own lives. The injustices that we personally experience. There are a lot of injustices out there. And this morning, it's focusing upon the injustices that you and I have to experience every day. The way in which we are not treated fairly. The way in which we may be misjudged. When we might be accused innocently of doing things that we fail to do. Where people fail to recognize and appreciate the good that we do. There are many injustices. So how are we to respond to those injustices? The Pharisees taught that we must exercise justice in the proper exercise of righteousness. Notice Matthew 5.38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a phrase that is found repeatedly in the Old Testament. The purpose of this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was to limit the retribution or the retaliation that one could take 
for an injustice that was encountered. It was seen to be a way of limiting the wrathful response that all too often happens in an unregenerate world. So that one could not require more than an eye for an eye. You couldn't require an arm and a leg for an eye. You couldn't require the death penalty for an eye. There needed to be a, a re, uh, there, there needed to be a resistance. There needed to be a limitation on retribution. Wicked people in a state of rage not only retaliate for the wrong committed against them, they often go far beyond simply getting even, as it were. Listen to these words out of the mouth of Lamech. Lamech is the first person in the Old Testament that married more than one wife. Lamech was quite the scoundrel. But listen to his words. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zila, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech. This is a warning to his wives. In fact, it's a threat. You better listen, woman, to what I'm about to say. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventyfold. He said, I killed a boy for hitting me. You better watch out. You better know who you're dealing with. You better understand the kind of person that I am. You hit me, you die. I'm going to pay you back 70-fold. I'm going to do something 70 times worse to you than you have done to me. That's quite a statement. That's exactly what this verse is intended to address. You can't avenge somebody 70 times. Seven. That's wrong. And Jesus actually referenced this, this passage when the disciples asked him, how often should I forgive someone? Seven times? Jesus says 70 times seven. You'd have the exact opposite response that Lamech had. We are to be totally different. We are to be a unique people. But Jesus goes far beyond simply teaching that this passage limits retribution. Jesus teaches that a person does not have to retaliate at all. It's meant as a maximum, not in a minimum. The worst that you can do is require an eye for an eye. That's the max. That's the ceiling. Can't go above that. 
but there is no need to require an eye for an eye. There's no need to retaliate. And in fact, you can respond in a totally different way and demonstrate grace and mercy. Now, why I say that it is important to keep in mind that there's a difference here between personal response and governmental response is because this phrase, as I said, is found repeatedly in the Old Testament. And when it's referring to government, it specifically says you may not show mercy or compassion. You've got to uphold justice. And so God, in his justice, must be upheld, and so Jesus Christ dies on the cross for our sins. But personally, in our interpersonal relationships, we can respond with mercy and with grace. So Jesus takes this a step further. Notice verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. Don't resist the one who is evil. To resist evil is to retaliate or respond by fighting back. The key word is to resist. That is to oppose, fight against, or seek to overpower by force. To seek to overpower by force. Rather than retaliate for injustices committed against us, we should respond to that person with grace and mercy. That's the theme of this passage. So let me give it to you again. Rather than retaliate for injustices committed against us, we should respond to that person with grace and mercy. Jesus provides us with four illustrations of how we're to respond with grace and mercy when injustices are committed against us. These are four examples of a variety of circumstances that we encounter in our life. And what I'm going to stress this morning is that Jesus provides us an example. Now when I say provides us an example, it's not taught in this passage, but Jesus' life illustrates what he is going to teach. I'm going to find an example how Jesus lives out the teaching that he gives in this passage. In each one of these four illustrations, how does Jesus model that kind of life? To show you that indeed his righteousness exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and certainly exceeds our righteousness. The first example of an injustice that might be committed against us is to be mistreated or ridiculed. Notice verse 39. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. The injustice is being slapped on the right cheek. Now, to be slapped is the ultimate insult. The ultimate insult. It is worse than being called names. It is a way to reproach 
an individual. It's more about insult than it is injury. You may remember back in the 1800s, the turn of the century, when there was still dueling in America, where people would solve their disagreements by having a duel, people standing back to back, walking 20 paces, turn, and firing. Do you remember the way in which a person was challenged to a duel? Probably saw it in, in old movies or whatever. Took out their gloves and slapped the person in their face. That was the challenge to a duel. That was the, the affront that had to be responded to, that had to be defended, that had to be dealt with. A slap in the face. It was meant as an affront. The Old Testament, as well, taught a forgiving and tolerating response to insults. Lamentation 3.30 says this, Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. Jesus taught that one did not have to respond negatively to an affront or an insult. They didn't require a forceful response. But what we need to understand in this passage is that this action, or lack thereof, of retaliation is not giving in to evil. It is not capitulation. It's not just giving up. But rather... It is a strategy for being victorious. It's how evil is to be overcome. Even as we use as our theme verse this morning, our call to worship, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't let evil dictate to you that you now become evil in the way that you respond, but instead you be good and in so doing, you will overcome evil. Alexander McLaren said this, and I quote, If we are to have real communion with God, we must not flush with indignation at evil, nor pant with desire to shoot the arrow back to him that aimed it at us. In regard to the evildoer, the most effectual resistance is, in many cases, not to resist. There is something hid away, something in most men's hearts which makes them ashamed of smiting the offered left cheek and then ashamed of having smitten the right one. It is a shame to hit him since he does not defend himself comes into many a ruffian's mind. Jesus did, of course, literally practice what he preached. Prior to the crucifixion, judgment being pronounced, the soldiers did this. Then they spat in his face, beat him with their fists, and slapped him. 
and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? For they had blindfolded him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a reed as a scepter in his hand. They made fun. And they insulted him by slapping him in the face. And how did Jesus respond? To silence. He did not revile them. He did not mock them. He did not injure them. He did not hurt them in any way. He took it. He suffered under it. That should be mind-boggling to us. Realizing that Jesus is the very Son of God. Realizing that he is both God and man. Realizing in the Old Testament that if a person even touched the Ark of the Covenant, they were struck dead. Remember the story of how they are, um, they are transporting the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. They're doing it in an improper fashion. They were to carry it upon their, their shoulders, uh, the, the priests were. But instead, on this particular occasion, they put the, car, the uh, Ark of the Covenant on the back of a cart. And Uzzah is walking behind the cart, and it hits a pothole, and they stumble, and it teeters, and the Ark of the Covenant is going to fall to the ground, and Uzzah reaches up his hand in order to steady the Ark, in order to keep it from falling, in order to preserve it. And in touching the Ark of the Covenant, God strikes him dead. This very same God allows his face to be spit upon and to be hit and to be bruised. Jesus lives this out. We are not like to be, we are not to be like the child whose defense for getting into an argument is, he hit me first. All I'm doing is retaliating. All I'm doing is getting even. Evening the score. Doing what is deserved. Jesus let insults and injuries go unanswered. 1 Peter 2.23 When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus teaches us to be a people of mercy and grace when we are mistreated, and insulted. Second area of life, grace and mercy demonstrated in the injustices in legal matters. We are not to fight back or counter-sue the person who would sue us. 
now in view is an injustice. It's an unlawful lawsuit, if you will. An injustice in a legal matter. Most likely having to do with some kind of indebtedness or a bill. Now notice verse 40. If someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. A shirt was given as a surety or collateral for paying a debt. A cloak was the outer garment that was of far greater value than what the shirt was. Now you have to remember these are simple times. Much like on today, where food and clothing were at a premium. Well, a shirt, like today, many people have a number of shirts. But the cloak, the outer garment, for us a coat, we tend to have far fewer coats than we do shirts. They're more expensive. Jesus taught, if a person is going to take your shirt, let them have your coat also. Now, the Old Testament forbade the keeping of a cloak as collateral for a debt. In Exodus 22, 26, it says, If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. So, the Old Testament said, if you ever take a coat or a cloak or this outer garment as collateral for a loan, you give that back before the sun sets. Because that's the only coat the guy's got. And he's going to be cold. So you be sure to give that coat back. Now, Jesus says, if somebody wants your shirt, you give him that coat. That one that he has absolutely no claim to at all. Let him have your coat. So what are you to do if a person sues you falsely for your shirt? Rather than countersue, let him have not only his shirt, let him have your coat also. Jesus experienced many injustices in the Jewish court system and in the Roman courts. He was placed on trial and he was sentenced to crucifixion. All of these trials, there were injustices. In the Jewish courts, they actually knowingly committed injustices. They actually bribed witnesses. They caused people to perjure themselves, to bring accusations against Jesus. It was ludicrous. And yet he was condemned. Then he's brought before Pilate. 
And Pilate, on four separate occasions, says concerning Jesus, I find no fault in him. I find him to be innocent. I find him not to be worthy of death. And so he says to the Jewish people, who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus? And they say, Barabbas. He says, what shall I do with Jesus? They say, crucify him, crucify him. In Matthew 27, 35, we read this. And when they crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, naked, his clothes were at the bottom of the cross. And the Roman soldiers, as part of their payment, were allowed to confiscate the property of the person that was being executed. The only property that Jesus had were the clothes that he wore. And they laid at the bottom of the cross. And they started to gamble for who would get the outer cloak. Who would get the most important article of clothing? And while they are gambling over his coat, Jesus is hanging on a cross. Giving far more than any material possession. But gave his life for sin. We're to marvel at Jesus and his righteous forgiveness and mercy. Grace and mercy in political matters. Matthew 5.41 And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. The one mile refers to the practice of the Roman soldiers that required civilians to carry their burden for a mile. So a Roman soldier had the authority to commandeer an individual, if you will, and a person, a passerby. A passerby. And that person could be forced by Roman law to carry a person's back sack or anything that would encumber this particular soldier that he didn't feel like carrying. He could grab a hold of somebody and say, you got to carry this for me. But the law limited that commandeering to one mile. At the end of the mile, the person was free, could go home, and then the soldier had to get another person. We see that even in the biblical text. In Mark chapter 15, verse 20, and after they had mocked him, that is Jesus, they took the purple off him and put his garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him, and they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country 
Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander, to bear his cross. So when Jesus started off bearing the cross and when he couldn't bear it anymore because he became just so physically weak and tired from the loss of blood and from the beatings that he took and from all that he had experienced, when he fell under the weight of this cross, some Roman soldier grabbed a passerby by the name of Simon and said, Here, carry this cross. And this man had no recourse but to do what was bid of him because that was the law. But what does Jesus say? If he says, carry my burden for a mile, you carry it for two. Just don't do it even with a graciousness. He doesn't just say, don't complain, don't grumble, don't whine, don't frown, don't give the guy a hard time. He goes way beyond that. He says, go another mile. Go another mile. Jesus, of course, did, in fact, bear his cross. John 19, 17, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull. And he bore that cross until it was physically impossible for Jesus to bear it anymore. He fell exhausted under that cross. Lying in the ground. Incapable of taking another step under a load he never should have borne. Jesus came not to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. Here is the response that we are to have to troublesome authorities. Troublesome authorities. The Jewish leaders thought that the Messiah was going to deliver the Jewish people from the Roman authorities. They were looking for a political leader and deliverer. Jesus refused to be that political leader and deliverer. The Jewish people tried to entrap Jesus, the Pharisees did, by asking him a very hot-button question of the day, and that is, must we pay tribute or taxes to Caesar? Do we have to pay this government that is occupying our land and ruling over us and dishonoring our religious beliefs and practices, and who is committing all kinds of injustices against us, do we have to pay them tax? Do you remember Jesus' response? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. 
Jesus said, pay the tax. And not only did he say, pay the tax, but you remember what he had Peter do? He had Peter go down and get a fish, and in the fish's mouth was a coin. And he said, you go and pay for you and for me. Well, Jesus paid taxes to Caesar. Out of a coin, he miraculously provided. The taught one in the same hand, I don't have to do this. But I will do this. For it behooves me to fulfill all righteousness. I will honor the government. I will pay the tax. I will do the good. Jesus responded to political injustices, not by force, not by fires, not by protests, not by riot, but humble submission. Fourthly, grace and mercy in conducting one's business affairs. Matthew 5, 42. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Jesus teaches us that it is not enough to be fair and just in our business dealings. He teaches us we're to be people of grace and mercy. We aren't simply to be fair. We aren't simply to do the right thing in terms of, you know, don't rip somebody off. Give them an honest day's labor. Require a just price for that which you are selling. In the Old Testament, there are laws about just weights. You're not to have two kinds of weights that are able to um, miscalculate in your favor. You're supposed to have a just weight. Jesus says, that's not enough. That's not enough. He teaches us that we're not to be self-seeking. That we are to be generous. That we are to see our income and our wealth as an obligation to use what God has entrusted to us as a way of helping others. Even as a, in the book of Ephesians, where we read that the person who steals, let him steal no longer, but let him work. And then it goes on to say, not just work, but that he might give to others. Moving from a thief that takes for themselves to a person who now uses what they have for the benefit of others. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching in this passage. Be generous. Give to those who have need and those that would want to borrow from you. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says this. It's about the attitude of Jesus. And of course, in the book of Philippians, we are told that we are to have the same attitude that Jesus had. 
in Philippians it says, let this mind be in you, let this attitude be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God, thought it not robbery or a thing to be grasped or held onto, to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in likeness of man and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 puts it this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. It likens the Son of God in heaven with all the glory, all the majesty, all the pomp, all the circumstance. We can't imagine the splendor, the angels bowing before him, the angelic choirs proclaiming his name. And the Son of God leaves heaven to be born on earth and to be placed in a manger, in a stall. And as Jesus grows and matures and ministers and he calls disciples to follow him, he warns them and says, the birds have nests, the fox has his den, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Even a fox has a place to call home. Even a bird has a nest. But Jesus, in all of his adult ministry, simply traveled from town to town with no place to live, with no ongoing accommodations, and no material goods. All I'm trying to say to you this morning is this is Jesus. And rather than argue with this text and try to get your head around pacifism and, and all these things, can we just take a step back from that a moment? And just marvel at Jesus. Who literally fulfilled each one of these instructions. And can we simply say this morning, we don't. We don't. Let's try harder. But it's more than just trying harder. The reason that Jesus gives this instruction is to point out the very truth that unless your righteousness goes beyond the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, unless your righteousness doesn't go beyond the righteousness that you have right now, there's no way you're going to heaven. But Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it.
not just in the limited sense that the Pharisees taught it and didn't even measure up to that, but in the fullest sense, in the greatest way, with ultimate perfection and representation of the person of God, Jesus lived it out. This is a passage about Jesus and about appreciating and worshiping him. This Sermon on the Mount, its principles are repeated throughout the New Testament. Jesus had taught that we are to bless those who persecute us. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Then it goes on to say, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So these very same principles are scattered throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. So may we seek to be more like this passage would have us to be, people who aren't trying to get even, people who aren't trying to retaliate, but a people that are trying to overcome evil by being good. Here is the essence of Jesus' teaching about being salt and light. Here is where we are unique as Christians. Here is where our testimony stands firm and strong. Here is where the light shines. And here is where the instruction is so different from anywhere else that we are going to be taught. And that is, don't retaliate. Don't meet force with force. Don't try to overcome evil. By force. Overcome evil by doing good. That no one has anything to say against you. That there can be no fault found. So when the centurion who stood under a many a cross When Jesus died, said, truly, this is the Son of God. And the thief who hung on his one side said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The way to victory in our personal relationships and in the evil of this world is by not being overcome, not being overwhelmed, not being swallowed up by the evil around us. It's so easy to become cynical and to become hard. And everywhere we go, we hear, stand up for your rights. Don't let people walk over you. Don't let people take advantage of you. Be strong. 
Jesus teaches there's a different strength. Proverbs says, greater, more powerful is he that can control his spirit than the one who takes a city. It takes a lot more power and restraint not to hit when we are hit than it is to lash out and strike someone twice as hard and twice as fast. That's our witness. That's our witness. And this morning, I say to you, if you have never, ever asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior, to forgive you your sins, to bring you into a right relationship with God, to transform your life by giving you power that comes from without, not just from within, as the Holy Spirit moves and directs in us to transform us and make us into different people. If there is any passage that teaches us that our righteousness is lacking, it's this one. And if it's any passage that teaches us that Jesus is different, it's this one. Trust in Jesus as your Savior. Let's pray.